This is the second talk in a series, and normally I don't give two in a row, but it worked out that way this week. Last week uh, we talked about getting the decks cleared at the end of the year so that you would be ready to step off into the new year. We talked about forgiveness and repentance and making a plan for your next year. One hopes that you've been working on that and you're going to be all set. And what I want to talk to you about now is the plan for next year and what it is Yeshua is calling on you to do. By the way, one of the things that's been just fascinating is I've been thinking about this for two weeks. And today's reading is the one that it matches with, not last week. And it's kind of interesting because as I've been thinking about it and studying it, things have just been showing up which I find really fascinating. And I'll share some of those with you as I go. The first one is the Tanur of Yavne. There's a story, a rabbinic story. After the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, Rabbi Yochanan Banzaki escaped to a little town on the coast called Yavne. Yavne is very famous in Jewish literature because the Romans destroyed the whole place. So he established a little yeshiva in Yavne with the idea being that he was going to preserve Judaism. There's a story that comes out of Yavne about a stove or an oven. And I've told this story before and I have told it wrong. I have never understood it. The first thing that happened that was, wow, is I was looking at Aleph Beta and Rabbi Foreman explained the story of the stove at Yavne. And it was like a blinding flash of the obvious. Once he explained it to me, it was just very clear what was going on. So what the argument is, there's two rabbis, or one rabbi and everybody else is the way it works. And the one rabbi is Eliezer ben Harkanos, and he's on one side. And everybody else in the yeshiva is on the other side. And they're arguing about a stove. And the stove is called a tanur. And it's a special kind of a stove. You've all rubbed clay together as children and make long snakes, right? Well, this tanur is made out of coils of clay. So you rub clay together in whatever size it is, and you stack the clay like a basket, and that's the oven. And so the question is, if the oven has been cut apart horizontally and then put back together with sand, is it still an oven? And why does that matter? The reason it matters is if it's still a legitimate oven, then it can transmit uncleanness. If it is not, then it can't. So if it's not a legitimate oven, things that are placed in it cannot become unclean. And you know in the Torah that if you get dead bugs and stuff in your oven, you've got to break stuff up and that kind of thing. That, that's the origin. Now, this is really, really odd and really, really esoteric. Who argues about cutting an oven horizontally in pieces and whether or not it's a legitimate oven if you put it back together with sand? I mean, what kind of argument is that? But it turns out that it's really important. And until somebody explains it to you, you just don't see it. So, the argument goes, Rabbi Eliezer says that it is not an oven and so nothing in it can become unclean. Everybody else says, yeah, it is really an oven, and if it becomes unclean, it can transmit uncleanness. And Eliezer says, I'm right, you're wrong, 
And to prove I'm right, I'm going to say to that carob tree out there, move. And the carob tree gets up and moves. And the rest of them say, we don't listen to carob trees. So he says, if I'm right, I want that stream outside there to reverse and the water to flow uphill. And the water reverses and flows uphill. And the other rabbi says, we don't listen to water. This point, Rabbi Eliezer is really getting frustrated. So he says, if I'm right, let the walls of this yeshiva collapse. And the walls start to collapse. And Rabbi Yehoshua, who's on the other side, says, stop. We don't listen to walls. And so the walls sort of stop about halfway tilted, right? Most of you have heard this story before. So Eleazar is really getting frustrated. And he says, if I'm right, there'll be a voice from heaven. And sure enough, a voice comes down from heaven, Rabbi Eleazar is right. And they said, we don't listen to voices from heaven. And you're all shaking your head. And the place where they go is in today's Torah portion where it says in Deuteronomy 30, For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off, it is not in heaven, that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us to bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea to bring it to us, that we may hear and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. So what the rabbis and the majority say, it's not in heaven, it's down here. And they threw Rabbi Eliezer out of the synagogue. So, what is the argument about? Because when they say, we don't listen to voices from heaven, everybody went, "Mm, I saw you do it, right? It turns out they're right. First off, the idea of this coil of clay sliced horizontally and then put back together by sand is a metaphor for the nation Israel. Yavne is famous because there's nothing there but sand. So the idea that Israel has been cut apart by the Romans and is being put back together in Yavne with sand in between, the question is, can this nation continue to live? With Jerusalem destroyed and all of our yeshivas destroyed, can we still live? That's the question. All the rest of this stuff is a metaphor for can this nation live? And the majority of the rabbis in that yeshiva say, yes, we will live. We will continue to be Jews. We will continue to be a nation even though we have no land. Rabbi Eleazar says, no, we're destroyed. We have no hope. We cannot be a nation anymore because we have no land. We have no schools. We have no sages anymore. Everything has been destroyed. We are going to be destroyed. That's the argument. And by the way, that argument goes clear back to Mount Sinai, doesn't it? Because remember, Moses is up on top of the mountain, and God says, "Uh, Moses, those people you brought out of Egypt, they're dancing around a golden calf now. Just get out of my way, and I'll destroy it." Moses doesn't move, and God relents. So this is very much in the spirit of every other potential destruction that Israel has undergone. The question is, are they going to be destroyed as a result of their apostasy? I mean, they, they, they deserve it. There's no question they deserve it. The question is, are they going to be destroyed? And the majority of the rabbis say, no, 
we will not be destroyed, we will continue to exist, we will continue to be a nation even though we don't have a capital city and we don't have any land anymore. And oh, by the way, 2,000 years later, they still exist. Everybody understand the argument here? And until you understand that, it just seems like, gee, this is a really stupid, very esoteric rabbinic argument. Who cares about a stove that's been cut in pieces? And furthermore, why aren't you listening to voices from heaven? And what I'm saying is the majority there is very much in the spirit of Moses and Abraham and all of the other sages in the Torah that talk back to God. Because God periodically decrees, I'm going to wipe them out. And Israel or somebody in Israel stands up and say, no, you can't do that. So that's what the argument about the Tanur is. Finally understand it, and it makes great sense. Well, this thing turns on this Deuteronomy 30 and 11, which is the Torah is not in heaven. Now, fast forward in the book to the book of Matthew, which is, by the way, 40 years before the incident of the stove, picking it up at 1617. And Yeshua answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What he is saying, it is not in heaven, it is down on earth. Same discussion. Now, a couple of things in here. In verse 19, it says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Will give. Future. This is before the crucifixion. When he comes back is when they get the keys. And it's the keys of the kingdom of heaven, not the keys to the kingdom of heaven. By the way, I got this from Charles Capps, and he explained it in a way I'd never seen it before. And I was like, wow, this is really obvious. You know, another blinding flash of the obvious, right? So, if you had a hotel, and I were to give you the keys to the hotel, what that would do is get you in the front door. Once you're inside the hotel, there's all those rooms, and those are all locked. If I give you the keys of the hotel... What you've got is this big ring of keys or cards or however they do it these days. And not only can you get in the front door, but you can get into all the rooms. So the keys of the kingdom of heaven are different than the keys to the kingdom of heaven. That's sort of thing one. And then this business of whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Binding and loosing is a rabbinic term. And what that means is you will establish halaha which means that if somebody comes to you with a question or a dispute about how to interpret Scripture, how do you walk it out, halaha, how do you walk? It's sort of like our stove. Is the stove kosher or the stove not kosher? How do you walk it out? What's the ruling here? And what it says here is whatever you decide is what it's going to be. And the way Caps translates that is, again, different. I didn't believe it when I read it. But I went to Spiros Lodiades. He's written a keyword study. He's a native Greek speaker. And it turns out that Caps is correct. And it doesn't say whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. It is whatever you decide is already decided in heaven. 
which is to say that you are authorized to interpret scripture here on earth and it has already been ratified in heaven. This doesn't mean that you get to make your own stuff up. What it says is you have the authority of interpretation down here. And by the way, when Rabbi Eleazar says, I want a voice from heaven, the rabbis say it's not in heaven. You don't have authority here. We do. We're the ones that set halaha, not you, because you put it down here. Yeshua is saying exactly the same thing to his disciples. Did I say that so it made sense? All right, let me try it again. You've all heard this before. Who has authority on earth? People do. Given to us in Genesis 1. Genesis 1, starting in verse 28. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Who has dominion? Humans do. Now, God gave us the keys to the Lexus and we turned around and locked them in the trunk. Yeah, we did. That's what happens when we follow Satan instead of doing what God said. We got the keys and we locked them in the trunk. All right, so Yeshua has got to come retrieve the keys. And he has to do that as a man. Remember he says in the Gospels that people who enter through the proper gate are the shepherds, those who come on over the wall are thieves and robbers. The proper gate is through the womb of a woman. Yeshua comes into the world through the proper gate, the womb of a woman, and he is authorized. He is also God. And he goes and retrieves the keys out of the trunk and gives them back to us. What Yeshua is saying in the gospel is, here are the keys again. You have dominion. If things get out of order, I want you to put them back in order. You're in charge. Don't come up to me and ask me to put them back into order because I have already given you the keys back. You fix it. That's your job. That's why I gave you dominion. You're supposed to fix things when they get out of order. And when it says binding and loosing, you look at something and it's out of order, you can bind it and say, that is not permitted here. You see something that is, you say, that is permitted here. So, the question in Yavne is, can a nation exist without a capital city and without a country? The rabbi said, yes, we can. We will continue to be a nation. And they were right. 2,000 years later, they are still a nation. So then the question becomes, can a kingdom exist and run without the physical presence of the king? Yes, it can, because that's what Yeshua is said. He says, I am giving you the keys back. I'm going back up to heaven. You run the place while I'm gone. Can the kingdom continue to function without the presence of the king? He says it can. And he says, you're supposed to make it work. Figure it out. And oh, by the way, I gave you a book, the Torah. Those are your instructions. And so you interpret everything in this world through the lens of Scripture, but you guys got to make the tough calls. That's what I'm giving you the keys for. So, he says, I will give you the keys before the resurrection, before the crucifixion. He says that in, in Matthew 16. After the resurrection, he comes back, and I'll read you a sample passage from John 20, verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. 
If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. This is how you use the keys. And, of course, the Catholic Church takes that and they set up a whole hierarchy with priesthoods and stuff like that. And I, I don't subscribe to that. I subscribe to the idea that you have all been commissioned. He has given you instructions. He's given you authority. And he gives you an example. If you go to Luke, chapters 9 and 10, I'm not going to read them for you. There's two separate incidents. In Luke 9, what he does is he sends out his 12 disciples. And the instructions are, announce the kingdom of God, heal the sick, and so forth. And then in chapter 10, he sends out 72. And he gives them the same instructions. He says, go out into the land here. Heal the sick. Cast out demons. Proclaim the gospel. So what he's doing is he's giving you an example of how it works. And when they come back, what do they say? What they say is, wow, boss, even the demons were subject to us in your name. So what the king has done is he's given you the seal. You all understand what a seal is? That's the thing that you stamp stuff and make it official with? So what the king has done is he's given you his seal, which is his name. And he says, I am authorizing you to use my name to bind demons, to heal people, to deliver people, to pass out the gospel, all of those things. I am giving you authority to use my name as you go as my subjects in the kingdom. You guys are in charge. You have my seal. Go use it. So, let's go to Mark 16. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. And by the way, snakes, this doesn't say you wander around harassing reptiles. What it says is you have authority over Satan, over the serpent. You don't need to go look under rocks and harass serpents. That's not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about is your authority over the snake, the serpent, the one who was in the garden. You have authority over him. So what he's saying is, you have the authority. I'm going to go up and sit beside my father. I'm not going to be down here. I've given you everything you need. I've given you authority. I've given you my seal. And I've given you instructions. Now go do it. And as we get ready to go off into the new year, I am going to suggest that that's what you ought to be doing. Because that's what he said to do. Now, I told you at the beginning of this, I've been thinking about this for two weeks. And things keep coming across my desk. I've got a feed reader that goes out and gets random tweets and just pops them up. And I got this tweet from a guy I have never heard of before. And furthermore, his signature is in Arabic. 
and his name is Yad el-Baghdadi. I have no idea who this guy is. Never seen him before, haven't seen him since, but listen to what he said. Hope isn't just an activist touchy-feely kind of emotion. Within the realm of political possibility, hope has tremendous power. Dictators recognize this and focus so much of their attention on demoralizing and crushing hope out of their rivals. If you think you have been defeated, you will stop fighting. You've then already submitted in advance. The opponent, even if he is just seconds away from falling, will have been handed a victory. Also, if you have no confidence in your own cause, how can you inspire others? Outsiders who can tip the scale for you or against you. Dictators spread cynicism, and if you allow it to infect you, that is true defeat. And if we allow that kind of cynicism to spread, its scourge won't stop at our own countries. It will infect the world, as it has. And when people take decisions or create policy within an atmosphere of cynicism, they create the worst possible policy, the most myopic possible. Cynicism is obedience in advance. No idea who that guy is. But it just sort of showed up on my computer screen as I was figuring this stuff out. And I will suggest to you that one of the things that happened in Christendom is we have become cynical, we have ceased to believe our own message, and we have become fearful. And what Mr. Baghdadi is saying is, when that happens to you, you are defeated in advance. So, you guys have got the keys of the kingdom. Go use them. He gave them to you to be used. You have got the seal of his authority. That's his name. He has given you authority to use his name. One more thing. James 4.2 You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Here. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You have got the king's checkbook, but you do not get to write yourself a check to put into your own bank account. You get to sign checks from the king for benefit of the kingdom. Just like Ray and I, we carry the bag of money home every week. I've got $10,000 in that bag sometimes, but it's not for me. It's for the kingdom. Same thing with being able to write a check in Yeshua's name. It's not for you. It's for the kingdom. Now, one of the things God says is, oh, by the way, I don't muzzle the oxen. So if you're out there doing stuff for the kingdom, you won't write a check to yourself for a new BMW, but things will happen so that you're blessed and you prosper. Since I have been doing this, I have been blessed and I prospered. Ray and I don't take a salary. We don't get paid. We don't have to. God cares for us because we're doing what we hope he would want us to do. And yeah, we screw up. Everybody does. But God takes care of his servants. So when you got the king's checkbook in front of you, by all means, use that checkbook, use that seal, use that authority. Use it, use it, use it. But he will take care of you. You don't have to worry about that. Because a lot of people, they go say, I'm claiming a new whatever. That's BS. That's not what the word is given to you for. 
you be out there doing the king's business, use his seal, use his name, he will worry about you. You don't have to worry about that. You worry about his kingdom. Now, the last thing I'm going to say in Isaiah today, we read that Yeshua is coming back with blood up to the withers of his horses. One of the things about prophecy is prophecy does not have to come true. Prophecy is a warning. And if you heed the warning, change your ways, do what he has called you to do, the prophecy just evaporates. But the prophecy says is this is what's going to happen if you continue doing the stuff you're doing. So the idea that he is going to be riding back trampling on the nations with their blood up to the withers of his horses, I am suggesting is up to you whether that comes true or not. You need to go tell them so that they can repent and so that they can come back to him and they can come into their kingdom. And that prophecy doesn't happen. And when he comes back, he will come back in peace instead of with a sword. That's up to you. I will suggest that most of the church is sitting on its blessed assurance saying, yeah, at some point Yeshua's going to come back and then it's going to be really bad for all them heathens. That's the wrong attitude. He's given you the keys, he's given you his seal, and he says, you put it back into order. Don't make me come down there. Now, don't get me wrong. We all look forward to his return. We always look forward to his presence. But what we'd really rather have him do is come back and say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. I am really happy that I didn't have to slaughter a bunch of people. So, as we start off this year, go thou out and use his seal.